Luke chapter 23. mentioned it in the prayer, but just to uh, catch you all up on the, the latest with Sandy. She's at University of Chicago Hospital. Last night they did, uh, began chemo treatments because essentially she's too high risk for surgery right now. Uh, so she's going through chemo. I ask you to uh, keep her in your prayers and, uh, and the family as well. Uh, so we want to remember her and, uh, and think upon God's goodness in the midst of uh, trials in this way. Luke chapter 23, Uh, let's begin at verse 1, and then we'll read through verse 25, looking at verses 13 uh, through 25. So you go to the previous page there just for the first bit. Let's hear now from God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. Let us attend to its reading. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing, deserving, nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts... They insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The grass withers, and the flower fades, 
The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. In one of the most famous chapters in the history of literature, one of the characters in the Brothers Karamazov tells of a story that he is working up in his mind, trying to construct his own story about Jesus. He imagines that Jesus comes to earth in the 16th century, not for his glorious return, but as he walked this earth during his ministry. The 16th century was the time of the Inquisition, uh, where there were public martyrdom, uh, there was public martyrdom and uh, execution for those who would not bow the knee to the Pope in Rome. So in the midst uh, of the madness of these public executions and all of the craziness that's going on in the public and in the streets, it imagines Jesus coming to that, to that reality. And it forces us, as this character tells us about the story that he is writing, or at least working up in his mind, it forces us to ask the question, is it possible that the human heart is so sinful that if Jesus were to come to this earth, people knowing who he is and recognizing him, would they still reject him? It also makes us think perhaps of the crowds during the, account, the gospel accounts of Jesus when he is sent to the cross, the crowds that shift in their allegiances, shouting in praise as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and many of them shouting, crucify him, merely days later. The trial of Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps is the pinnacle of absurdity, but it shows us how absurd a world can be that is wrapped up in sin. We recoil at the sinful human heart, but we remember that that sinful heart is in each of us. It causes us to think, or maybe we convince ourselves that we would never do this to Jesus. We we would never cry out for him to be crucified, but yet we remember that it's for us that he goes to the forsaken cross. Without this sham of a trial and a verdict, we remember we would not be saved. If this had not happened to Jesus, we would not have salvation. So we overflow with gratitude and humility. We have sorrow, but we have sorrow beside our rejoicing that our sin brought into the cross. And without that cross, we have no hope. Uh, Two ideas that we'll work through today in today's passage. The first is this, Jesus confirmed as innocent. Jesus confirmed as innocent. And secondly, Jesus given in exchange for the wicked. Jesus given in exchange for the wicked. So first, Jesus confirmed as innocent. Uh, last week's passage, those first 12 verses that we read today, uh, Jesus moves from the Jewish council to Pilate and then to Herod. The Jewish leadership distorts their accusations against Jesus. They need, it to, to, they need them to ring in the ear of Pilate so that he really perks up to what they're saying. He's disturbing the peace. He's inciting rebellion, all of these things. Their plan does not work, of course. Pilate finds no No basis for charging Jesus. Nothing that he has done wrong. Herod also finds no fault in Jesus. A couple of Old Testament passages that are in the background as we work through this. The first is Deuteronomy 19. God's law said there needed to be two witnesses in order to make a case. And here you have two government rulers agreeing in their judgment that this man doesn't deserve death. He doesn't even deserve punishment. Showing us the innocence of Jesus 
But also in the background is Psalm 2. The the kings, the rulers of the earth are are huddled together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's going to be self-interest and selfish motives that basically cause this situation to come about where Pilate is worried and Herod, Herod are both worried about keeping their position, keeping the peace, keeping the mob happy, and thus they relent. Their own interests outweigh the well-being of Jesus. This is where our story picks up today. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate with the same conclusion. No reason to punish this man. Uh, there's nothing that would substantiate any kinds of claims in that way. In verse 13, we see that Pilate summons people together, and it's not just the rulers, not just the religious establishment. He calls all of the people together, and the reason for that is probably because Pilate thinks this is an open and shut case, as it were. He says, if everybody comes together and I can just lay out the brute facts of the case, if I can just tell people what's going on here, then they're going to see it my way. Maybe many of us have been in that kind of situation where we say, look, this this is very simple. If we just get everybody who's involved in the same room and we just lay out the facts of the case, we're all going to be in agreement. How often that is not the case. Our instincts can be wrong. Maybe people refuse to see it the way that that you do, uh, or because they've already made up their mind, or because they interpret the evidence in a different way. It shows how difficult it is sometimes to to prove things, particularly in in a court of law. But this is not a matter of evidence. This is a matter of the heart. This is what Luke is trying to get at. That this is a matter of the human heart that could bring us to this absurd conclusion. Verses 14 and 15 show Pilate's insistence that Jesus is innocent. You have kind of this threefold proclamation. He said he's innocent before he sent him off to Herod. And now twice again. He says, no, he's, he, he's an innocent man. He's getting more uh, serious and solemn with each one, seemingly. There's no basis for a charge. And then he's done nothing deserving death. So we're getting deeper in terms of the seriousness. But then there's this strange thing that happens at, at the end of verse 16. Pilate says, he's done nothing wrong. He is innocent. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Very strange that we read him say, therefore, in light of his innocence, therefore I will punish him and release him. It's possible that, and perhaps likely, that Pilate thinks this is going to calm the crowd down. I'm going to to give you a little bit of what you want, and you should be fine after that. Let's, Let's give this man a beating, send everybody home, and the craziness can die down. We're dealing here with the sinful human hearts and how true it is that there often is no halfway measure here. Sin will always demand more. It will always need more. I had the opportunity to go to a lecture this past week over at the seminary regarding addiction and understanding addiction as it continues to ruin many parts of our society. And I've heard of many of these things before, but it's so informative and helpful. One of the most insightful parts was about the neuroplasticity of the brain. And basically, it's when someone uh, uses drugs, there's this influx of of pleasure in the pathways of the brain. That It's almost like it turns a a one-lane road into a four-lane highway. There's this this fire hydrant of of pleasure into uh, the brain. 
But what happens is that the brain will get used to that in a sense and it will demand that much and even more and more and more. And one of the saddest things about people who become addicted to these substances is that the normal kinds of things in life that would make you happy, your family, hugging a child, um, a delightful meal, time with friends, these simple things in which our our brains react to them and, and feel good, that all goes away. There's sort of this dark cloud over the rest of your life, and the only thing that can bring you happiness is if you get your substance. And sin is the same way, isn't it? There's this neuroplasticity to it that it will demand more, and it will demand more, and it will make other parts of your life awful and not enjoyable. You offer it something like Pilate does here, it's never enough. And we have a crowd here that is driven mad under their own sinful and fallen hearts. It's perfectly illustrated in the second part of our passage today. So verses 18 through 25 show Jesus given in exchange for the wicked. We've seen Jesus confirmed as innocent, but we see a crack in the foundation of that case. Pilate has said, well, I'll at least punish him. What we see in the second part of the passage is Jesus given in exchange for the wicked. It seems that when Pilate says, I will beat him and then release him, everyone sort of reacts violently to that. They cry out together with with one voice. Luke emphasizes the unity of the crowd here. That's not to say that every single person in the crowd is crying out, crucify him. We're going to find out in just the next passage that there's going to be a number of people, uh, particularly women, who are following Jesus and lamenting what's going on here. They're, They're crying out. They're weeping. Because their Lord uh, is going through this terrible situation. But there's a strong majority here, and that is Luke's point. This, of course, brings us to the one that they demand, the one that the crowd demands in the place of Jesus. You may have noticed that verse 17 is blank in your Bible. There's no uh, verse 17 there. That can be very strange, uh, what's going on there. Basically, uh, when the King James Bible was written, It had a different set of manuscripts. And after the King James Bible was written, we were able to discover more ancient manuscripts that show us that it's probably the case that a scribe who was copying the Gospel of Luke wanted to let the readers know why Barabbas could have been released. You read in the Gospel of Mark and other Gospels that there's this mention at the time of Passover, uh, whoever's ruling, whoever's the governor at that time, was able to release one prisoner to the crowd. Luke's not interested in that, probably. It's most likely that Luke was not interested in that, so it has nothing to do with the meaning of the passage. But it tells us something about, Luke, about what Luke wanted us to see in this passage. He wants us to focus on the contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. That's what Luke is trying to drive home for us in this passage. So twice he mentions that Barabbas was in prison for insurrection and murder. That brings out the contrast between him and Jesus. Jesus was accused of insurrection, of inciting rebellion, but what is the truth about Jesus? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My servants are not going to fight. They're not going to bear the sword. The kingdom of God can advance through this world without toppling kingdoms, without going to the throne. See, the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire expanded through the world, it could only expand as it toppled other kingdoms. What does the Apostle Paul do, though? The Apostle Paul was perfectly happy to go into a city, preach the gospel, and not have any kind of problems with the local government. 
Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It transcends the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is not an insurrectionist or revolutionary in that sense. Barabbas is. Barabbas is a murderer. He is a destroyer of life. Jesus has come to seek and to save. He's come to to give life. Their contrast is stark. It's direct. It's intentional. Uh, The name Barabbas means son of a father. Bar, son, Abba, father. It means son of a father. Jesus is the true son of the heavenly father. The early church picked up on that and said that there's something going on here with Barabbas being like an imposter. He's the offspring of the evil one. He, he steals, he kills, he destroys. Jesus is the true son of the heavenly father. What kind of a world is it that demands evil in the face of such good? What kind of a world is it that demands Barabbas rather than Jesus? I go back to that story I mentioned at the beginning Brothers Karamazov, and the story that this man, where he imagines Jesus coming to the world in the 16th century, and he imagines the one who's leading the Inquisition, recognizing Jesus, and he throws him in jail. And he brings Jesus, or he goes to talk to Jesus while Jesus is in prison. And he says to Jesus that he made a mistake in his earthly ministry. See, what his suggestion to our Lord is that what he should have done is he should have given in to the temptations of Satan. Because Satan was giving him the weapons to enslave all of humanity. He says, give humanity bread. Give them bread. Appeal to their fleshly desires. They will follow you. Show them a, a, a miraculous, give them a miracle of some kind. Like when Satan says, throw yourself down from the temple. You will be protected or you will be resurrected. People will follow you. Show them the way of power. Show them that you are the kind of leader who can unite the world. There's something deep in the human heart that longs for that. Like at the Tower of Babel where humanity was trying to unite in order to ascend to heaven. The way of bread, the way of miracles, the way of power. All of these Jesus rejected. And this inquisitor says to Jesus that that was a mistake. You missed the opportunity to enslave the human heart. The entire world would have bowed down to you. They would have served you. They would have done anything to be your slave and to be your servant. But Jesus knows a deeper truth. And it it shows us the reason that he came to this world. To seek and to save the lost. Jesus cannot go against the character of God, and he knows the sinful heart. That is why he endures suffering, and he does so silently. It's not good enough to make people as righteous as the average person. It's not good enough to make people as righteous as the holiest person. He must make us as righteous as God himself. So he knows the depth of sin, and he knows what he must do. So there is this rabid response of the crowd demanding Jesus' life. Three times, Pilate will appeal to them. What has he done? Why are you crying out for him to be crucified? And this is mob rule. The people are not relenting. Pilate becomes, as one commentator puts it, the coward of history. We name him every week in the creed. We name him every week because he was ashamed to stand on the truth of conviction. He knew the truth. He would not stand for the truth. He would not live in accordance with the truth. As Christians, we are called to be people of the truth. The end of the passage says that Pilate gives in. It says he releases them to their will. 
Those are the last words in our passage. He releases them to their will. There's theological weight to that phrase, isn't there? He releases them to the will of the people. The will of the sinful human heart. What is it capable of doing? It's capable of taking unto itself the righteous Son of God and killing him and taking his life. So we have this picture. Jesus exchanged for Barabbas. What to do with it? What to do with this picture? On the one hand, it is grotesque. It's a grotesque picture. The sinner, the insurrectionist, the disturber of the peace, the murderer Barabbas for the perfect son of God, Jesus, the spotless lamb. It's a grotesque picture. But it's also one of the clearest representations in, the, in all of the scriptures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace. The glorious exchange for the perfect and the sinner. Barabbas is helplessly imprisoned. There's nothing he can do to get himself out. Helplessly imprisoned. He can do nothing to convince the public of his innocence. Everyone is perfectly aware of how guilty Barabbas is. Everyone knows what he has done. There's no convincing them of anything else. But he goes free and Jesus goes to the cross. The sinless in exchange for the sinner. The glorious exchange. So, it's a grotesque picture, but it's a picture in which we rejoice. Why? Why do we rejoice in this picture? Because I am Barabbas. Because you are Barabbas. That is who we are. That is who we are. And, and that is the kind of sin that we have that sends the Lord to the cross. I know not of all of our particular struggles. I know not of, of what are the things that weigh us down. But we can all look inside of ourselves. And even if there is that measure of sanctifying grace and this conformity to God's commandments and this joy and delight in what He is doing, we still know How easy it is for our hearts to be pulled away to the way of bread, the way of miracles, and uh, the way, the way of bread, the way of miracles, and the way of power. We need Jesus to go to the cross. Richard Sibb speaks of the turnings and windings and byways of the soul. That's what our our human heart is, just pulled to the side so easily. And so easily it goes astray. Prone to wander. That's what we are. We're prone to wander. And to leave the God of grace. We need Jesus to go to the cross. The people in the crowd. If there's anyone there that will turn to Christ after the cross and the resurrection. Which we can assume that it's probably likely that that is the case. They need Jesus to go to the cross. Phil Riken makes the point that perhaps we can imagine ourselves in this crowd. And we we would perhaps convince ourselves that we would not be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But if we know that you do not get to heaven unless he goes to the cross, then what do you say? Without the cross, you have no salvation. If Barabbas himself comes to believe, he needs Jesus to go to the cross. We never hear of Barabbas again, but you wonder, did he ever get it? Did he ever understand that his life was that clear representation of what happens in the glorious exchange. The sinner goes free. The righteous man is killed. i return once more to the brothers Karamazov. In this story, 
the, the character in, in, in the book, imagines how he might finish his story about Jesus as he comes back to earth in the 16th century. How, how will this story end? So as he points out that Jesus, in going to the cross, missed an opportunity to enslave the world. You missed an opportunity to have true power. He puts this whole case in front of him and he thinks he's got Jesus cornered. He's taught him a lesson. He waits to hear the response of Jesus. And in this story, he imagines that Jesus doesn't say a word. He walks up to the inquisitor and he looks at him with eyes full of compassion. And in a bit of a reversal to what happens with Judas when Judas betrays Jesus, he just, uh, with the love of friendship, kisses him. He kisses him. And the Inquisitor doesn't know what to do. In a sense, he is overcome. He sends Jesus away. It sort of ends on this weird cliffhanger type of ending. But that is the picture of grace that we need to understand. This is the depths of gospel grace. That Jesus looks into our eyes at our moment of deepest sin and rebellion. And he knows the depths of who we are and how deep our sin goes. He looks at us with eyes of compassion and he still loves us and he still cares for us and he still desires to be our savior and our substitute. My good friend Mike, a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, he's basically the one who got me through seminary uh, because he took much better notes than I did. Um, Much more insightful pastor and exegete and scholar than I am. And he has said that the deepest longing of the human heart is to have someone look at you and know the depths of who you are and still say, I love you. Why does marriage fall apart in our culture? It's because a spouse will look at a husband or a wife and say, well, I didn't know he was like this. I didn't know she was like this. When I got into this, I I, I didn't know who they really were. But then I live with them. I find out who they are. I can't be happy with this person. Jesus looks at us, knows the deepest depths of our sin and our rebellion. And even before any of us were born, he promised the Father that he would go to the cross to suffer for just those exact sins. Jesus for Barabbas. Jesus for sin. Jesus for sinners. If you would have salvation, you must trust in the work of your Savior that you see before you hear. There is no other way. Jesus had to go to the cross as the one who opened not his mouth, as the one who did not revile in return, but who gave himself, the just for the unjust, that God might justify the wicked. You need him, and you need to trust in that work. And then you need to Rejoice in the hope and the present comfort which we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. He may have remained silent on earth, but he remained silent on earth so that he could go and speak a word of intercession for us in heaven. He was silent on earth so that he might speak for us in heaven, so that he might be our great and faithful high priest. He opened not his mouth when he suffered so that he might ascend. And speak words that would cover our sin. So that he might speak words from heaven to give us comfort and hope and salvation. The book of Hebrews says that this is like an anchor for the soul. You know, when you're, uh, when you're in a lake or any kind of body of water and you need to anchor, what do you do? You throw it down. It goes down to, to the bottom and it, and it latches in there. It keeps the boat from drifting. 
For the Christian, the anchor goes up. As we're anchored in Christ, who is in heaven now interceding for us. He may have been silent on earth, but he speaks for us in heaven. He's silent no more. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that Jesus is silent no more? Do you hold fast to this hope? Do you unswervingly cling to your Savior and trust that his work is sufficient? Do you understand how you needed him to go to the cross? By the Holy Spirit, may it be true of all of us. And may we have this hope and this faith to the end, never turning from it, always trusting in our Savior, that we would continue steadfastly in the gospel, that we would throw away confidence in all things, save that which comes through knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Trust in no other thing. Trust in no other thing. Trust in his work and his going to the cross for you and his looking into the depths of who you are, knowing exactly how deep your sin goes, saying, I love you, giving you the kiss of friendship, being your savior, your faithful high priest. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that blessings would flow from heaven through Christ and by the power of your Spirit. We rejoice that he is, Jesus is now in heaven interceding for your people, for his people, for his sheep, May we be found faithful, trusting in his work always. In his name we pray. Amen.